<laughs> oh, this is the way. Welcome to Life Church Livonia. Welcome to our Trunk or Treat Sunday. I thought about keeping this helmet on the whole time, but you know, they're not real. You're real. <laughs> Didn't want to offend the Mandalorians by taking my helmet off. My name's Alex. Welcome to Life Church Livonia. And I'm so glad to be here with you today. If you haven't noticed, today is our Trunk or Treat Sunday. That starts at 11 a.m. today, and if you are able to come, we would just love to have you with us in person. Today's not just Trunk or Treat, though. It's the beginning of a new series that I am really excited about, a series called This Is The Way. Now, This Is The Way is a popular quote from the hit show The Mandalorian, which I'm dressed in today. And in this show, it's this cultural expression that is said by the Mandalorian people to give strength, to uh, clarify resolve, to express solidarity. Uh, it's said to this Mandalorian people to strengthen their convictions as they live in a culture and world in which they are strangers. Now, the way was also the name given to the early Christians who were Jewish followers of the way of Jesus. The followers of the way lived out their conviction of Jesus' resurrection as strangers in their own strange world. And in this series, we're going to be looking at five different practices that marked and continue to mark followers of the way of Jesus and indeed the life of Jesus himself. Each week, we're going to be asking why Jesus engaged in this practice, how Jesus engaged in this practice, and how we can too. When we observe the life of Jesus, we see certain habits, certain behaviors, certain patterns that over 2,000 years have been mimicked and refined into what we call the spiritual disciplines. Now, before I go any further, I want to clarify what this means. When people hear the word discipline, they often think punishment. They think I've done something wrong. They think I'm going to get hurt. That's not at all what this means. And that's not even what discipline means. Discipline comes from the root word disciple. And people who are disciplined engage in formational habits to train them unto a certain end. Athletes engage in discipline in order to compete at a high level in their sport. Monks engage in discipline <clears throat> in order to uh, be spiritually centered. CEOs engage in themselves in disciplines in order to earn high profits and good margins. Discipline is simply training toward an end. And this word discipline, like I said, comes from disciples. So spiritual disciplines are simply spiritual formational habits that train us to be like Jesus. That's what a spiritual discipline is, and that's what this series is all about. Now, unlike this, uh, the fruits of the Spirit or the Ten Commandments, there's not an explicit list in Scripture where it just says, this is spiritual discipline one, this is number two, this is number three, this is number four. Um, they're not explicitly stated, but they are all explicitly practiced by Jesus throughout the Gospels. Depending on which author you read, you may find a different list of disciplines and there's validity to each list. But for our purposes today here at Life Church Livonia, this past spring we went through the disciplines of Sabbath, of Scripture, of simplicity, and of prayer. And in this series, we're going through the disciplines of community, of solitude, of silence, of hospitality, fasting, and gratitude. And so today we are beginning with community. Um, college was an interesting time for me. It was a good time for me. And, and like a lot of people, it was a really formational time for me. One of the things that 
really was hard for me about college, though, was the very beginning. You see, I grew up in this church called Messiah Church. My parents were uh, on the elder team, volunteer youth pastors, a lot of deep relationships there. And so I was born into a church community where people knew who I was before I knew who they were. And then we moved to this place called Bear Lake Bible Camp, and my dad was on staff there, and our family was deeply integrated into the life of the camp. And again, people knew who I was before I knew who they were. And then we planted Life Church Canton when I was 10. And even still to this day, people I've never talked to once who went to Life Church Canton for a period of time feel like they know me. And they'll come up and begin a conversation with me like I know about their lives, like I must know about, you know, their kids, like I must, I just, I know them because they feel like they know me. And again, it was this environment where people knew about me before I knew them. And really, that was a beautiful thing. I don't resent that at all. I'm not irritated by that. It, it just really was a gift to feel like there was this community where I was so known. However, when I went to college, it was the first time in my life that uh, no one knew me and no one really cared. And if I disappeared the next day, nobody would even know who to ask about. What happened to a uh, uh, guy in room 3B? I mean, uh, uh, Derek? Jared, you know, like they just wouldn't have known what to say. And I have this really specific memory from that time. I was going through a mild depression, feeling just listless and feeling like, gosh, who am I now? And I have to reinvent myself and I have no reputation and I don't like that. And I remember sitting in my dorm room and I was looking at the door directly in front of me. And I heard people going by outside and laughter and I remember just praying and going, Lord, I just wish someone would knock on my door and open it and invite me to do something because I am so lonely. I just don't know what to do. I just am longing for someone to open my door and invite me into something. And in that moment, I had this visual in my mind's eye where I kind of went above the dorms and the roof was off. It was kind of an aerial view of all the rooms. And I could see in some rooms there were two or three people hanging out, some rooms there were five, some rooms were empty, some rooms had open doors, some had closed. But in a room three or four doors down, there was another guy sitting in his room looking at his door asking God the same thing. And the Lord pushed on my heart in that moment and said, the reason no one is knocking on his door is because you are waiting for him to come knock on yours. And that was so convicting to me in that moment. It was this moment where I realized I wanted community because I wanted someone to do it for me and I didn't want to have to give much effort or participate. I didn't want to take the risk of knocking on a door. And that was a turning point moment for me where I realized that community is not something I'm entitled to receive. It is something that requires me to walk out of the room and knock on someone else's door. To start community takes courage and to sustain it takes practice. I think COVID brought this into a whole new focus in a whole new way, didn't it? I mean, during the pandemic, it became painfully clear that community was not a given. People weren't just calling us because we saw them often before the pandemic. The rise in depression, the longing for human connection, and all these things came racing to the forefront of people's felt needs. Because here's the deal. Every single human person was designed to know and be known by somebody else, to truly be known for who they are. 
We were designed to love and be loved, to give love and to receive it. We were designed to celebrate and be celebrated, tell someone else what's good about them and hear from others' mouths what's good about us. We were designed to give and be given to, to sacrifice for things that are bigger than us, that matter beyond us. And this is every human being's desire, but, and there's some big buts in community. I'll just leave it there. There are some major challenges that come with those deeply human needs. Community requires things like vulnerability so that we can actually be known. And some of us didn't know we weren't good at this until COVID hit, did we? I mean, we thought we had a lot of friends, but all of a sudden when COVID hit, it just was revealed that this was a loose and superficial group of loosely connected relationships, not really friendship. Community requires repentance and forgiveness as well. It's only when we can say, I'm sorry, that love has an opportunity to grow. No one is all good. All of us have blind spots. All of us have rough edges because we're deeply broken by sin. And people share things about us they shouldn't sometimes. People misrepresent our motives and our thoughts and intentions. And when hurt happens in community, we can either step in or we can run away. And many of us struggle to have hard conversations and step in when we get hurt. And we, even more of us struggle to repent when we get confronted with hurting someone. We struggle not to justify and defend ourselves and just say, I'm really sorry that that hit you like that. That was not my intention. Community also requires effort and energy and sacrifice. People besides us have needs. What? Ridiculous! <laughs> and sometimes the needs people have aren't fair. It requires more than we can give. For some people, COVID was awesome because it required so much less energy than other seasons where they were interacting with more people. But some of us who felt that way at the beginning began to realize by the end, when we lose community and we trade it for comfort, we do spend less energy, but we quickly realize we also have less purpose, less hope, and less joy. Because when our circle shrinks, so does our life's capacity for knowing and loving and celebrating and giving. And finally, community requires endurance, doesn't it? I mean, to be continually vulnerable, to be constantly repenting, to always have a hard conversation to step into, to be forgiving and reconciling. These are difficult things and a lot of work. And for some of us, it's enough work to send us into self-preservation mode. But despite these struggles, we see Jesus committed to making and sustaining a community of disciples. When we see Jesus's life, we don't see that Jesus had a disciple. We see that Jesus had disciples, plural. We don't read about Jesus and Peter, but Jesus, Peter, James, and John, or Jesus and the Twelve, or Jesus and Mary and Martha, or Jesus and the Five Thousand. The pages of the New Testament scream in testimony that we cannot follow Jesus alone. We can't separate our discipleship with Jesus from the community of Jesus, specifically the church, because this is Jesus's express and explicit desire for all people. But if it's so hard, if it's so frustrating, if it's so inconvenient, why is it so necessary? Today, we're gonna to look at and answer three questions as we seek to live in the way of Jesus around community. First question is, why did Jesus practice community? How did Jesus practice community? And then how do we practice community? Now, normally, 
Here at Life Church Livonia, we like to pick one scripture and walk through it together. But to get a good idea of the answers to these questions and the gravity of this spiritual discipline, we're going to have to actually jump between a couple different places. We, we're going to start in Genesis and we're going to end in the Gospels. And so our first question, why did Jesus practice community, uh, is this. Have you ever wondered why Jesus, if he came to save us from sin, why did he spend his three-year ministry recruiting 12 guys to follow him? And the 12 guys he recruited were people who were opposed politically, theologically, socially, and economically. I mean, Nathan had faith, Thomas doubted. James was a blue-collar 9-to-5-er, and Matthew was a corrupt banker. Simon was a zealot, a freedom fighter who was violent, and John had friends who worked in the temple. And so much of the gospel accounts are filled with Jesus' teaching, correcting, rebuking, and redirecting this ragtag group of misfits who are opposites. And it, the gospels are full of Jesus forming this group of people into what might call, you might call a community. Even when your culture, politics, theologies are aligned, community is still tough for all the reasons that we talked about already. So what would push the Savior of the world, who's here to save us from sin, to spend so much time in his three-year ministry trying to help this group of 12 become a community? Well, the answer to that is not, like I said in the Gospels, it's actually in Genesis. And it goes so deep, we just do not have time to really mine the depths of this, but I'm just going to give you a taste, and if you're interested in more, we can talk about that later. So, in Genesis 1 and 2, we have the Bible beginning with this verse. In the beginning, God, and then there's this dot, we're going to come back to that, created the heavens and the earth. Then the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So I want to pause here because there's something really important happening. We just saw three super important things in the first two verses of the Bible. Thing number one, we see God, right? In the beginning, God. And then there's that little dot that I mentioned. That little dot is an untranslated word. And it, it's not quite fair to say it's untranslated. It might be more fair to say it's untranslatable because it's not a word. It's A and Z in the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph and Tov. They're just right next to each other. So in the beginning, God, A-Z, created the heavens and the earth. It's a peculiar thing, but what John tells us in chapter 1 of his gospel is that that word, that strange, untranslatable word, that that word is the word Jesus Christ. That that's the Logos, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, present right there in the beginning of creation. And so in the very first two verses of the Bible, we have God the Father, we have the Word, the Son, and we have the Spirit of God above the waters all present together. And then that God, this, this God of three persons, does this in verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So in Genesis 1.1 and then in verse 26, we see this three-person God at work, what Christian theology would call the Trinity. 
And what the Trinity means is that God is one being in these three persons. An analogy that I've heard that is the best I can give you is you think of the sun in the sky. There's the ball of fire that exists off uh, in space. That might be God the Father. And then there's the rays of the sun, the very light that reaches to touch the earth. That would be the sun coming from heaven to earth. And then you have the invisible heat of the sun that actually changes atmospheres and environments and moves things and grows things and seasons change because of the heat, but it's invisible. And that might be the Holy Spirit. So you have this triune God who is a community unto himself. Think about that. God is not just a singular being. God is a community of one being. It is this self-giving, self-sustaining, perfect community in his own nature. So when God creates people in his own image, he's not just interested in creating one person. He's interested in creating them, a community of people. This is because it's his nature. And because we're made in his image, the communal nature of God is directly copied in the human design. The very first not good in scripture is it's not good that Adam, singular, should be alone. He's not in a community. He's off by himself. And so the reason it's not good is because community is the nature of God. And therefore, it's the nature of the human design. So when we're not living in community, we're actually not living into our nature or into God's nature. So Jesus practices community and spends so much time forming this community because it is his nature to form communities of people who are formed with, for communion with him and with each other. So how does Jesus do that practically? How does he do that in the real world? Well, we could study our whole lives answering that question in all of its steps and still not reach the bottom. But this question of how does Jesus implement and practice community there's some amazing resources on this, amazing resources on the spiritual disciplines. I'm just going to do a survey here, just a really brief overview. But if you want to dive deeper into this, please check out our digital bulletin for extra resources on these things. So the first thing we see Jesus do in order to make this community and participate in it is Jesus commits to community. Jesus doesn't just commit to an idea of community. He commits to specific people that he calls the 12 disciples. Luke 6 says this, it says, One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. This isn't on the screen, so just listen to what I'm saying here. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, who he named Peter, his brother, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Jesus doesn't just stop at this community of 12 either. He'll later include people like Mary and Martha and Mary Magdalene and Lazarus in this community. And I want you to just pause for a moment and think about how profound this is. John 3.16 says God loves the whole world. And Jesus comes down as God with skin on. And so this God who loves the whole world still understands that in order to create community, he has to commit to specific people at a specific time in place in history. 
Jesus models that loving our neighbor in practice is not at all the same thing as having great ideas about loving our neighbor. Love can only grow when we are really committed to real people doing real life together as we follow our real God. Community cannot exist without commitment. Ronald Rollheiser says this about community. He says, again, this isn't on the screen, part of the very essence of Christianity is to be together in a concrete community with all the real human faults that are there and the tensions that this will bring us. Spirituality for a Christian can never be understood as an individualistic quest, the pursuit of God outside of community, family, and church. The God of the Incarnation tells us that anyone who says he or she loves an invisible God in heaven but is unwilling to deal with his neighbor on earth is a liar because no one can love a God who cannot be seen if he or she cannot love a neighbor who can be seen. Hence, a Christian spirituality is always just as much about dealing with each other as it is about dealing with God. So Jesus commits to community. The second thing Jesus does as he's forming a community is Jesus steps into, not out of, hard conversations. Peter is often seen as a leader of the disciples, and Jesus says that it's on Peter's shoulders that he's going to build his church. So I don't think it's a stretch to say, of all the twelve, Jesus is probably closest to Peter. But despite their closeness, and maybe because of it, Jesus and Peter have some conflicts. Not just one, but a few. We see one in Matthew 16, and it says this. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You ever try to rebuke Jesus? Never, Lord, he says, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Now, one of the funny things about this is Peter thinks he's doing Jesus a favor. This comes right after Jesus and Peter had this beautiful bonding moment. Jesus says, hey, people are saying lots of things about me. What do you guys say I am? And Peter says, I think you're the Messiah. And it's this amazing moment of revelation. And there's a beautiful song I love about this that says, narrating the mindset of the disciples, it's not like we haven't thought it before. It's not like we hadn't had the long conversations when he came off to pray. It just became clear. And struck us all in turn as the answer appeared and our spirits burned. Just beautiful lyrics. So G Peter, in this out of this moment of intimacy with Jesus, tries to give Jesus some advice and tell him what's right and wrong and what to do and what not to do. And Jesus doesn't run away from that and go, gosh, man, oh, Peter, you broke my trust. I, how am I going to you know, include you in my plans after this. Jesus steps into a hard conversation and says, Peter, you're wrong. This is not God's will. You're in self-preservation mode. I'm in follow God to the cross mode, and I need you to get on board this thing. Jesus steps in. He doesn't just have conflict with Peter, though. He has conflict with the 12. He catches them arguing on the road about who's the greatest and corrects them then. And again, when they're trying to prevent children from coming to Jesus, Jesus corrects them again. We see Jesus constantly correcting, rebuking, teaching, and encouraging the disciples as if it were a normal part of community. Because guess what? It is. 
It was a normal part of community for Jesus to have hard conversations. And if it was normal for Jesus, it's going to be normal for us. Jesus didn't just confront, though. We also see that Jesus forgives and reconciles where possible. In a different event, Peter ends up betraying Jesus. He denies Jesus several times and says he doesn't know him, and he runs away. And this breaks Jesus' relationship with Peter. And um, Peter and Jesus, for a little while, uh, are at odds with each other. After the resurrection, Jesus tells uh, the women, go tell the disciples and Peter. Meaning Peter is no longer a part of the twelve because he's broken relationship with Jesus. But Jesus comes to Peter and Peter repents and Jesus forgives him. And then Jesus restores and reconciles that relationship. Peter denies him three times, so Jesus says three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And Peter gets to reaffirm his love for Jesus and be reincorporated back in. But Peter's not the only disciple to betray Jesus, though. Judas betrays Jesus. But there's some differences here. You know, Judas sells Jesus, his rabbi whom he's given everything to follow over the last three years. He sells him to be crucified and condemned. Judas is so guilt-ridden, he kills himself. Now, we know that Jesus forgives Judas on the cross. He forgives everyone of every sin on the cross. But he cannot reconcile with Judas because Judas has run away into death. And the only difference between Peter and Judas is Peter repents and Judas runs away and his sin destroys him. All of us will probably either be Peter or Judas. We'll repent and say, you know what? I'm really sorry. That was wrong. How can, how can I make this right? Will you forgive me? Or we'll be Judas and we'll be so guilt-ridden that we run away and our sin will destroy us. When we look at the Gospels, we cannot escape the fact that in the way of Jesus, community is a discipline. It's not something that just happens. It's hard. It takes practice. It takes training. It requires growth. It requires work. But it's what we were made for. So how do we do this? How do we practice community in this Jesus way? And I don't mean generally. I mean you specifically as a person in your own life right now. Well, as I read and studied this, I think those three things I talked about earlier, Jesus steps into hard conversations, he commits to community, and he forgives and reconciles. I think each of us are probably stuck at one of those points. Maybe here today you're stuck because you're hesitant to commit. You're stuck on commitment. You're hesitant to commit to one group of people. You find yourself church hopping, or you find yourself attending multiple churches online. You find yourself maybe willing to come to Sunday, but when you're invited to the mission meeting or to a small group, there's something in you that just goes, ah, I don't think so. Maybe you've been coming to Life Church Livonia for years, and you haven't formed any real community because you haven't committed to real people in a specific time and place. You haven't joined that small group. You haven't taken someone out to lunch. You're waiting for someone to come knocking on your door instead of going, you know what? I'm going to go knock on someone else's door and invite them into community. Maybe you're slow to let people in and you want to commit, but you've kept your circle small and you need to grow in vulnerability to let people come to actually know you. Maybe you have a sin or a shame that is keeping you stuck and keeping you at a distance because you're afraid that you're going to be exposed and you're not sure what to do. And to be sure, our sin is exposed in the community. And that's why we have to press into hard conversations. But sometimes those go wrong and we end up getting stuck and hurt. Maybe for you this morning, you're stuck in a past church hurt. You went to a church years ago and 
so-and-so did this thing and the pastor said this and you really needed guidance, you needed love, you needed shepherding and you got judgment and you got rejection and you got pain that has stayed with you to this day. Maybe you're stuck on hurt from your parents, your family. They're Christians, at least they say they are, but you haven't really seen them act like it. And again, in moments in your life that were important, that mattered, where maybe you screwed up or maybe you needed guidance or help, they just were not there for you in the ways you needed and maybe gave you a curse instead of a gift. Maybe this morning you're stuck on hurt because you had an old community of church friends, of church family that was great. And when you talk about it, you talk about it like it was the good old days. But the good old days didn't last and they're gone now. And that wound is so hard you haven't been able to grieve that and step into a new community. Maybe you've been hurt so bad you're just afraid to trust. And that unwillingness or maybe even lack of knowing how to be vulnerable has kept community at an arm's length. Maybe some of us this morning are stuck on forgiveness and reconciliation. We don't know how to have hard conversations. And every time we have a conflict, it just feels like it goes south. And we don't know what we said, but now they're mad again. And now we're not talking anymore. And now this and now that. And now we've turned away. And now we're phone numbers blocked. And you get the idea. I know you've been there. I have too. You're not used to navigating hard conversations in a way that ends well. And maybe you don't know how. Maybe you're stuck because you're not used to saying, I'm sorry. And owning the hurt you've caused without having to justify or explain yourself. Maybe you're stuck in feeling that forgiving someone has kind of given them permission to get away with something. Forgiveness is not giving people permission to get away with something. It's taking the burden of balancing mercy and judgment to God. Because only God knows the exact balance of mercy and judgment that's going to lead them to repentance. Too much judgment and it creates a cycle of vengeance. Too much mercy and nothing's ever wrong. But God knows that balance. Now, forgiveness is a command by Jesus, and I want to be clear about that. He says in no uncertain terms, we cannot receive God's forgiveness and not give it. So forgiveness is a command, but reconciliation is not a command. Reconciliation is restoring and hopefully strengthening a relationship. And that's not always possible, but when it is, we want to work towards that. So I just want to ask you, what's your next step today with community? Do you need to commit? to serving on Sunday, to being involved in a small group, simply to going out to lunch with somebody? Do you need to be willing to sacrifice a little energy to get to know somebody else and get out of your comfort zone? Do you need to work on saying you're sorry? Is there someone you need to apologize to in your own life right now? Is it that you need to reach out for help and learning how to navigate conflict in a way that ends well, not poorly, over and over again? Maybe it's reaching out for help to work through a hurt that you have that you just don't know what to do about nor how to get over it. Wherever you're at this morning, community is a discipline. It is a commitment that takes practice and it takes training. It takes showing up. It takes growth. It takes I'm sorry. It takes I forgive you. It takes many tears and it takes many hugs. It's a difficult, beautiful, fulfilling, painful, wonderful mess. But it's worth it. Because when we live out Jesus' way, in Jesus' community of the church, we bring heaven to earth by living the way that God lives and the way that God designed us to live. I want to end just by saying community is not something God just wants you to have with other people. You were made for a community with God himself. You were made to know and be known by God, to love and be loved by God, 
to celebrate and be celebrated by God. That's what we call worship, to give and be given to. But our sin separates us from God. It is us breaking that relationship. And the Bible says that everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But on the cross, Jesus came and sacrificed his life that he might give himself so that whoever believes in him, who, as Romans says, when we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our hearts God raised him from the dead, we receive salvation, which is that reconnected relationship with God. And maybe you're here this morning, and it's been a long time since you came back to church. Some of the things I've said, you know, you just have a history of getting stuck and hurt, have a history of not knowing how to forgive or navigate conflict. You're scared to commit. Well, this morning, I want you to know Jesus is committing to you, and he wants you to commit back. That love, that belonging, that sense of life and purpose that you're looking for, it is in Jesus, I promise. And I want to give you an opportunity to take a step of faith this morning and say, you know what, Lord? I still got a lot of hurt. I still don't know what to do about this thing or that thing. I got a lot of growing to do, but I want to be known by you. I want to be loved by you. I want to hear you celebrate me. I want to give my life to something that matters. So if that's you, I just want you to pray with me this morning. Lord, community takes training. It takes discipline. And Lord, I pray that you would train me in this way of life this way of life that Jesus lived. Father, I come before you with a lot of hurt, with a lot of fear, with a lot of regret, with a lot of anxiousness that I'm, it's going to repeat itself. And Lord, I just give myself to you. And God, I just ask that you would help me to take one step forward today in my relationship with you. I'm willing to trust you and willing, Lord, to let you show me how to live this life. I believe, Lord, that you forgave my sins so that I might walk with you. Help me walk with you today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you just prayed with us, please fill out that digital connection card so we can become your community and walk alongside you. And please stick around for just a few more minutes as we talk a little bit about our building campaign. Well, now that I'm not in a Halloween costume, I wanted to take this seriously. This is serious stuff. Before we end today, I want to talk about something a little bit bigger than our individual communities because we're trying to cultivate community here at Life Church Livonia, but we're also trying to cultivate uh, a blessing and a reaching and a, uh, an extension of Jesus into our community through Life Church Livonia. The church is not just a community for its own sake, it is a missional community. Our denomination is called the Evangelical Covenant Church, and the original name of our denomination was Mission Friends, that we are friends, community, on mission for Jesus. So in the same way, there are people in our church who, like me in college, are looking at the door of their home and life, hoping someone will knock on it. There are many households in our community waiting for the same thing. And so we kicked off our building campaign to begin moving out of Holmes Middle School into a permanent home for our church so that we might be a blessing in this community in the name of Jesus. A little over two years ago, we started receiving money for a building we didn't have and weren't looking for. We didn't have a campaign going. 
God had just put it on someone's heart to begin giving. And before we knew it, we had over $100,000 that was unprompted giving towards a building. We felt at that time that God was saying, hey, it's time to begin moving on this. And so we did. Last year in November, we launched our building campaign, and it has been a really awesome year. At the time, our church was about 150 to 180 people, somewhere in there. And in that, we were able to raise $422,000 in commitments. Now, the way the campaign worked is people could give one-time gifts, they could do some kind of um, alternate giving form, or they could do a, a, a commitment. And Amber and myself have been giving. We did a one-time gift, and I've been doing a commitment since then, a little bit each month, over and above our normal giving. And we saw $422,000 get committed. A year later, we have $335,000 in cash for the building where God would lead us. We weren't just raising money in this last year, though. We have been looking arduously for what God might have for our church so that we might be His hands and feet, bringing our community into His community. And so we've looked at many different buildings. We've taken several very seriously. We've put uh, offers on a couple, but to no avail. And where we're at today is that we are seriously considering a property right now as we speak. Our team is working hard on putting together uh, the details of that to see what God might be doing there. And we're going to be moving somewhere new as of spring 2024 which is really exciting. We are super excited that this spring we will no longer be meeting at Homes Middle School, but we are actively moving out into our community to what God has next for us. Now, if you're our guest today, I just want you to know that this is happening, and I want you to know things like over the last year, we have grown substantially. Our church is now a church of about 250 people, and three years ago, we were a church of 30 people in the middle of COVID at the end of a dying church wondering what God might be doing. And three years later, He has done a miracle of resurrection, and this substantial amount of commitment, capital that's been committed for this building campaign, is a testament to that. And so I just want you to know we are moving out of this temporary lease agreement into something more firm and long-term. If you've been coming to Life Church Livonia over the last year, and this is your church home, but you didn't get a chance to participate in the building campaign last year. Either you were too new to really commit, or you came after the big push was over. I want you to be a part of what God is doing because we're not in a building yet and we want you to be a part of the legacy that God is working here at Life Church Livonia. Last year we had 12 people come to know Christ. We had five people get baptized. This year we've had four people get baptized so far. We've seen an additional eight people come to Christ. That's 20 people coming to know Jesus in the last two years. And it's just amazing to see the, the fruit that God is bearing. The way we describe winning at Life Church Livonia is when someone makes movement towards Jesus because we are in the gardening business. God is in the gardening business. He's planting seeds in people, and He is in the long game to bring the whole world to Him. We believe in our heart of hearts and our very bones that Scripture is true when it says that it's God's will that everyone should be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And we are working so that Jesus might get everything He paid for on the cross. And this home campaign is simply the next step in that process. Being at Holmes Middle School has been 
awesome. We are so grateful for Mike Worlinger. We are so grateful for the staff and principal. We're so grateful for Livonia Public Schools for partnering with us for so long. We could not be more happy. But there are some things about this uh, situation that uh, keep our ministry caged a little bit. We can't meet midweek. We're unable to do some of the missional and discipleship things we believe are necessary for what God wants to do. We're not firmly planted in our community, and so it's difficult to figure out which needs in our community do we tangibly try to address. And so this is all a part of that as we move forward. So if you're just our guest, I want you to know awesome things are happening, and we are going to be moving here in the months to come. And if you call Life Church Livonia home and have yet to contribute to the building campaign, I want to give you an opportunity to do it. I'm not trying to coerce you. This is over and above the normal giving that we do. But I do want to give you an opportunity to be part of the legacy that God is doing in this church in our time. And so for more information on that, you can reach out to myself. Uh, you can fill out our connection card and you can give a one-time or recurring gift on our gift portal on our website. We're going to have a meeting coming up in a few weeks, more specifically about details of the building campaign. And if you're interested in that, keep an eye out for that announcement and you can reach out to us via the connection card. We can't wait to see what God is going to do in this next season as we are in transition. God bless and I can't wait to see you next week as we continue this series, This is the Way.